We've been in this series called Living Parables and walking through that this entire summer, and hopefully many have been blessed by that. And this particular week, I felt led to dive into Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, and the section of Scripture, I've been reminded of how tense the environment was in which Jesus was ministering and how many obstacles he had to his ministry. He was opposed really at every front. And even this being about a year plus before Jesus was actually crucified, he's already having the religious leaders of that day opposing him to the extent that we're told earlier in the chapter that they're already plotting his death. So they're trying as much as possible to oppose him on every front which is kind of ironic as he's healing and taking care of the poor. So it's interesting to see how much opposition he had. And one of the things that I also noticed about his life is that he pushed people to have to decide who he was. To His actions pushed people to have to wrestle through. What is the identity of this man? And the Pharisees in that time had already come to conclusions about him. And it's interesting, the more time that we're spend with Jesus, the more you're pushed to get off of the fence. Similarly, the hope for us in our life is that the more time that someone spends with us, the more they're pushed to have to decide, who is this Jesus that we follow? Here in our text, we see that firsthand, that people were already coming to conclusions about him. And for us in our life, the hope is is that we move people to come to conclusions about Jesus as well. I was reading a story this past week about a chaplain whose main responsibility was to visit people kind of in their last hours or last days. And the story that the chaplain tells is about going and seeing a man that he was called into the man's room literally on his last hours of his life and asked to, to pray over him. He goes into the room and this guy was literally convulsing and uh, didn't look promising for his future. And uh, so the chaplain just decided to just pray over this man to plead to God for his uh, rescue. And so while he was praying, he prayed for his healing. He also prayed that he would have an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ. And after leaving that, he wasn't very optimistic about the guy's chances of survival, but was shocked the next day when going past the room where the man had been, he looks in and the man is up and alert and fully active and ready to, to talk and interact with people. And so he goes in to find out what had happened. And He was shocked to find that the man's very first response to seeing the chaplain, no thank you, no hey, praise God, but instead his response was, I am an atheist and I intend to stay that way. Really, once somebody has a hard heart, it's hard to see that that turnaround and that change happen, but we do believe that our God can do it, that we can have a house that's divided, that's reconciled, and that's what we're praying towards even here in our study today. Let me pray before we begin in this section of Scripture. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now, and even as we're recording this video, God, we ask that it's a blessing to many that listen, and that you'd speak through your word and through this time in this text, and we invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So starting in verse 22, we're told it says, and I'm just going to read the very first verse, it says, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, referring to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Take a moment to break that down because it's pretty interesting, the diagnosis that's given. I don't hear that very often present day where someone concludes that, oh, they must have been demoned 
oppressed. Usually in the doctor's office, there's no mention of that possibility. Wonder even today how often we explain things with science, whether it's the most recent shootings or whatever it might be, we have some kind of diagnosis other than the spiritual world that we're told in Scripture is a real part of reality. We're told here that the man was demon-oppressed, and really, someone has the potential of two things, either being demon-oppressed or demon-possessed. Possessed is where the demon has literally taken full control and reign of the person's life, and they no longer have a say in what their actions or what they're doing. Oppressed is where a demon is literally just pursuing and bugging and trying to bring down a person. A believer can't be possessed because you can't have two landlords in the same house. Uh, Oppressed, though, is definitely a reality. Some people wonder if this is still the case today, if the demons are still active and working. I would say just from experience some years back as a young adults pastor ministering, we're at a weekend retreat, and this is a pretty intense story, but we're at a weekend retreat up at the camp that the church owned, and one of the the girls that we knew was struggling with depression was there, and during the worship time, an extended worship time, we saw out of nowhere, she ran out of the room, and uh, so grabbing another girl leader, went to check in and see how she was doing, and literally when we got in the hallway, she was speaking in a voice that was deep and definitely not of this world. And we knew nothing other to do other than to just start praying for this poor girl. And uh, in that time of prayer, finally, she kind of came back to reality and uh, uh, back to her normal voice and kind of got to debrief with her for the next hour. Is pretty uh, eye-opening to see all that she had been through. But in the middle of the conversation, when we kept on talking about Jesus and how he could change her life, she literally stood up and started running across the room. And the unique thing was is the, that the uh, retreat center that we're in was about three stories high, and it had a, a, an overview where you could actually watch someone doing rock climbing. She started sprinting to jump off of this three-story spot, and in God's kindness, he alerted me. I started running and literally dove and grabbed her ankles right before she fell over the edge with her upper half hanging over a reminder that this isn't just about flesh and blood. There's a demonic presence even in our world today that we're battling against. Jesus talks about this in his ministry. We also read about it in Ephesians 6.12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, or, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So to be aware of that fact that we're not just dealing with the natural here is an important one. According to scripture, we're told that this planet, this earth is actually the holding place for every single angel that rejected God's leadership. So we're literally living behind enemy lines along with everyone that's rejected, that's rejected Christ from the human standpoint. But here Jesus demonstrates a pretty awesome thing that he has dominion over not just the physical world, healing this man with the ability to speak and and to hear again, but also dominion over the spiritual world, showing the the proof of his power in both realms was pretty awesome. And like I mentioned earlier, push people to have to decide who is this man. 
fact, we see that in verse 23. It says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So we see there that the crowd's trying to make sense out of this, trying to connect the dots. And their conclusion is that, wait a second, is this the son of David? That's a royal title that's rooted in Nathan's prophecy all the way back in 2 Samuel that talk about David's sons being made king forever. This was a pointing to the coming Messiah. So basically they're saying, is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? A clear title of the Messiah. But the question is, why were they so hesitant to believe? So hesitant to embrace him, seeing all the miraculous things that he did. The truth is, it's because they weren't, Jesus wasn't doing the things that, he, that they expected him to do. He had no concern for political or national affairs. He didn't teach about uh, national deliverance, but rather about personal salvation. So they weren't quite ready for the message that he was bringing. The religious leaders began to panic, seeing the crowd kind of on the fence about his identity. And so they throw out a suggestion or a conclusion that they had come to. They said, it's only by Beelzebul. Who is Beelzebul? It's actually a, a title uh, that's derived from an ancient Canaanite deity, and it actually means Lord of the Flies. It was actually a reference to Satan himself. We see that by the mention of the prince of demons there. So they're pointing to this as a possibility, saying this is not of God, this is of Satan. If we think about it, that's really the conclusion we have to come to about Jesus when he deals with the supernatural, because that's all that deals with the supernatural. It's either of God or of Satan. They proposed the false conclusion that he was from Satan. It's interesting, even present day, when you think about it, how hard it is to convince somebody once they've established in their mind something is true. If you've ever crossed paths with somebody that's already decided something and they, they despite unlimited evidence, they're going to just dig in their heels. I'll share a, a silly example from this in the last week. I, as you know, I'm a nerdy car guy. And so I ended up at this uh, Corvette reveal event where they took the cover off of a, uh, the new 2020 Corvette. I was excited to see. Here's a picture of it here. And uh, when I was there, I was talking to the, the Corvette specialist. They had one guy that was there to represent uh, the company and was supposed to know all things Corvette. And he was explaining to us, he was explaining to us that there was only a couple different colors that were available for people to see. And uh, the one that I was looking at was a blue one. And he explained, there are definitely, there's only red, white, and I think he said blue. So just patriotic colors. He said, uh, no other colors like orange or anything like that's available yet for people to view. And everybody that was listening to him talk had been watching online with the different review with the different reveals, and there was definitely an orange one. You can see that in the picture here, where everybody's ex explaining, "Hey, I have a picture of a friend that sat in it." And explaining to him, this guy dug in his heels, and he's like, "You can't believe everything you see on the internet." So he pretty much looked like a a, a moron. I actually felt bad for the guy because the whole crowd was kind of rallying and sit and. Uh, pointing to the fact, but he just dug in his heels regardless of the evidence. It's a silly example, but it says something about our human condition. 
Once we've decided something, it's hard to see a change of heart. And that's true with these guys as well. They'd come to conclusion that Jesus wasn't God and they weren't even open to that possibility any longer. They start trying to spread that lie to others around them to protect their relevance as religious leaders. You can see that it happened behind the scenes. They didn't say it to his face directly. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, talking about Jesus, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And it starts with knowing their thoughts, he says. So they were most likely talking across the room or behind the scenes. Jesus recognizes the, 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 the poison that they're spreading and confronts what's false directly. Something we can learn from that. We don't have to be fearful to confront false truth or false presentation of truth when it's actually has eternity on the line. So thankfully, Jesus starts pointing out and dumping logic all over the conversations, pointing to the fact, the first observation is that a kingdom that's divided can't stand. Everybody knows this. Anybody that has any kind of common sense realizes that you need a united kingdom in order for it to work. I was reading a little bit about Abraham Lincoln before he became president. And one of the things that put him on the map and actually many point to as the reason he won the presidency was his commitment to unity. He actually had a, a talk. It was a pretty famous one. And his words said the same thing that Jesus points to. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. He recognized the same principle that Jesus points to. In order for something to advance, in order for something to take new ground, it has to be united. And there's definitely no civil war in the kingdom of Satan. He knows in order to succeed in his mission to take out as many people as possible, there needs to be a, a united effort. One of the things I loved growing up with, or having my kids grow up in the house and uh, having fun with them is they had an insatiable appetite to wrestle with dad on the bed. They would always ask dad, please, can we wrestle more? And it wasn't just my son, but both of my daughters. And it was fun for a long time wrestling with them. And, and uh, early on, it was uh, fairly easy because I'm obviously larger than them. And one of them would come and I'd just toss one of them by the side. It was great, uh, great for the ego. But somewhere along the, the line, they figured out something that made it a dangerous activity. They figured out how to work together. And when one was grabbing dad's ankle, the other would be biting my elbow and the other one having me in a headlock. And there was moments of genuine panic because you realize, wait a second, this is all of a sudden a threat. This is all of a sudden a risk to wrestle with the kids on the bed. Just kidding. Obviously, they weren't trying to harm me. But here, the same principle is true. When there's unity, that's when you're able to advance a cause. Jesus points out the fact that when a kingdom's divided, it can't work, it can't succeed. And we think about that, that's true with anything. That's true in a business, it's true within the church, 
It's true within a family, within a household. When there's not unity, it threatens its very existence. Continues with his next argument in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, upon first reading, I wasn't exactly sure what this was talking about. Dug into a, a number of commentaries to clarify one of the, the more known uh, historians was a man by the name of Josephus in the Jewish uh, culture, and he even wrote about the tradition back then that not having, uh, not having vacuum uh, salesmen going door-to-door, they actually had door-to-door exorcists. So they had people that would actually travel around with the option to have demons cast out. And so these men had the full endorsement of the religious leaders of that day. And so it's kind of interesting. Jesus is saying, wait a second, why do you endorse these guys that you are buddies with? Why do you endorse their ability to cast out demons, but not mine? Well, what's the difference between the two? His second argument is an inconsistent acceptance of exorcists. Again, poking holes in their argument. Third argument was this in verse 28 that Jesus' actions prove he is from God. It says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, if it is by the Spirit of God, he's saying, you've got to consider that if I have the authority, if I have the ability to cast out demons, you have to at least consider the possibility that it is from God. You have to come to some kind of a wrestling match and see if that's the possibility because authority says something. Authority says something. When someone has authority over someone else, you learn about their identity. Another kid example in our household, we have a, a, a little dog. It's a cockapoo. Her name is Bailey. I joke about being secure in my masculinity to own her. And, uh, and one of the things that I've noticed with Bailey is when my kids are calling Bailey, a lot of times Bailey will be napping and will look up, kind of check to see who's calling, and completely ignore the kid's demand or request. Drives my kids crazy. They're like, why doesn't Bailey listen to us? And I'll be like, oh, well, let me try. And I'll be like, Bailey, get over here. And Bailey is immediately comes to my side. And they're like, what do you do differently? And I explain to them that I'm the alpha male. And they, they don't like to hear about that, but that's something that the bald guy has that they don't have is the ability for this dog to listen and respond to authority. Similarly, Jesus is making the exact same point, even though it's a silly one that I make, saying that authority says something about what's happening. He's saying, if this is actually happening and it's of the Spirit of God, then you have to consider that maybe this is the kingdom that's coming to earth reason and logic to make the case for his identity. One more dose of that in verse 29, it says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Giving another illustration, another common sense one, that the necessary thing in order to rob a strong man's house is for you to be able to first restrain the strong man before you can take something. I'll use my last kid's illustration of the day. Sorry for so many, but this is the life that I live. 
is we started very early on explaining to our kids something that we call the bully rule. We explained to them, my, my son especially, that in order for you to be able to mess with somebody, you have to be bigger and stronger than them. And so when my son comes and does something, or even my daughters as well, if they mess with me, I get them in a headlock, remind them of the bully rule. Listen, you have to be bigger and stronger than me before you can mess with me. That's a principle that Jesus is implementing now. He's saying the bully rule applies here. In order for you to be able to rob someone's house, you have to be able to restrain the owner first. You think through this parable, though, who's the who are the different characters in this scenario? Who's the, who's the strong man in this scenario? The strong man is Satan. The house is here. It's the earth. And what are the goods that are being taken from the strong man? You and I are the goods. You and I are the one that Jesus Christ is breaking into the enemy's household and setting people free. In this case, it's a necessary bully that's breaking us out of darkness and into light. It's actually good news, and it's kind of a reprogramming because I think too often we have the picture of Jesus in white robes and light blue sashes and not seeing him as the one that takes out the strong man. It's a great reminder for us, whatever we're dealing with, of who our God is. Acts 26, 18 explains this how this works. He says that he moves men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Colossians 1.13, similar principle says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And one we're most likely familiar with, 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Pretty powerful reminder of what's happening, taking people from the house of darkness and restoring them, freeing them from sin, setting them into the new kingdom. That's what Jesus shows up to do. A couple takeaways as we wrap up here. First one that I think of is this. We need to have a contagious life where people, when they're exposed to us, they're pushed to decide, what do I do with Jesus? That kind of life, what does that look like in order to live that life? Second takeaway, a reminder, at least I wrestled through in my own study, is the reminder that there is a battle going on behind the scenes. The physical isn't everything that's happening. In fact, I imagine if we did an open mic on a Sunday, there would be story after story of the supernatural. And so we can't be naive to who our enemy is. I've heard it said before that the greatest lie that Satan made us believe is that he doesn't exist. And awareness is a wonderful starting point in order to resist his temptations. Another takeaway is the idea that I pointed to earlier is that division destroys. Division destroys family. Division destroys business. Division destroys relationships. Division destroys the church. We need to be conscious of that and fighting against that at every possible point. 
Probably one of the most dangerous people within the body of Christ is the person on the phone after hours calling somebody, I have a concern about this, going on to vent about all kinds of gossip and issues. We need to fight for unity and diffuse gossip. Another takeaway, and as we get close to wrapping up here, is correcting false thinking. Sometimes it's key for us, as we see Jesus' example, when there's false, uh, when, when something's being presented that's false and eternity is on the line, we have to elevate the truth over potential offense. Jesus did that all the time, consistently, as he set an example for us. So us not to be fearful of presenting truth when there's literally so much at stake. Very last takeaway, which I love the most, is the reminder of the one that we serve is above the strong man. The person that we're talking about as the, the enemy, we have one who is greater. The one that, that, that came, that bro- broke through into the darkness, providing us rescue the kingdom that was divided someday, we're told every single knee is going to bow. Everyone's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to study your word. We thank you for the principles here, the reminders for us to fight for unity, to resist the enemy, to be willing to speak up for truth, that we'd also be committed to uh, opportunities to diffuse any kind of disunity, anything that jeopardizes the, tr- the church and the truth that needs so desperately to go out. Thank you for the awareness that we have of our enemies, but the, also the awareness of who it is that we serve, who is greater, who is stronger. We praise you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.